I'll read this morning verses 12 through 14, and we'll focus our attention on one verse, verse 13. Do you follow along with me as I read God's word? Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's go to this God in prayer. Sovereign God, the name that is above every name, we come to you now humbled, asking for help. We need help in so many ways. We are totally dependent upon you. Every function of our organs, every breath that we take, every morsel of food, every true delight that we enjoy, they're all gifts from you. We deserve none of them. We're dependent upon you. And so we come to you today asking that you would feed our souls. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that it has been preserved for us and that it is clear and powerful. And we ask now that it would pierce us. And that you would come as the surgeon and heal broken hearts and bind up the wounded. Would you help us? to see what you are calling us to do and how you are calling us to live and how you are calling us to believe. So Lord, these are things that only you can accomplish and so we trust you. We ask this in your name. Amen. I've been preaching through the book of Colossians on Wednesday nights and we've been learning a lot about the sort of clothing that Christians are to put on, the type of clothing that is proper for Christians to wear. Of course, I'm not referring to actual clothes, but the type of character that should adorn our lives as Christians. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is using a subtle but, but clear metaphor of putting on and taking off clothing to describe how we should live now that we have been raised with Christ. It's, he does so with the metaphor of putting on or taking off. There are certain types of clothing that are appropriate for those who have been raised with Christ. That is, those who have admitted freely that I am a sinner. That I've done things that are worthy of death. Because the Bible says the wages of sin are death. To be a Christian, you must have admitted that you are, and you must admit that you are a sinner. And so you identify, you willingly identify with Christ and, and his gruesome death. I mean, what a strange thing that we put a cross on a stage and we sing songs about blood and wine. Well, it's because we've identified with Christ and his death. We're saying, in a sense, that that should have been me. That I have done things, many things, that deserve a death like this. That's what it means to identify with Christ 
in his death. But we do that in hope of resurrection, because I hope you know the story that after Jesus died, yes, he died, but he rose because he's more powerful than death. And that's why he has the name that is above every name and that we can sing that glorious truth. Just as we identify with Christ in his death, we also identify with Christ in his resurrection. And since he rose from the dead, he rose to a resurrection life, a new life. Paul teaches that Christians, if we've been raised up with Christ, we have an entirely different life, a whole new life. Remember, we studied last week uh, as Pastor Mark walked us through John chapter 3, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you've placed your faith in him, then you have been born again. To be born means that there is new life. And in that new life, there are certain behaviors and attitudes and thoughts and actions and deeds that are appropriate. And then there are others that are not appropriate. And so Paul says, Christian, put off the stained and defiled garments of sexual immorality and, and dishonesty and greed and idolatry and covetousness and impurity. Put, put that off. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense in your new life. That is not fitting for you. That's, that's why Jesus was crucified. That's the very reason. That's why people die is because of sin. Put that off. That doesn't fit. Instead, as verse 12 says, put on a certain attitude of heart. Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience. A certain lifestyle. This past Wednesday, we looked at each one of these qualities. And what we saw is that there is no human that models this for us. These are not, these are not human qualities. But instead, they are qualities of the character of God. Only God is humble and meek and kind and patient. And since we've been raised with Christ, and since we've been seated with Christ, and since, as Colossians teaches, we are now being transformed into the image of God, then it makes sense that if we are being changed so that we can dwell with God forever, so that we don't have to hide in nakedness and shame like Eve and Adam did, but so that we can be with him, well, then it, of course, makes sense that we're to be like him. We're to be like God. And the only way that we can do this is since the Spirit of God dwells in us, we are able to know God. Not just know about God, not just know his Hebrew names or whatever, but to actually fellowship with him and to enjoy him. Christians have experienced the compassion of his heart. That he would love a sinner like me. Our lives, we recognize, have been marked by his kindness. And in Jesus, we have seen true humility and true meekness and patience. So we're to be like God. Well, then verse 13, Paul extends this list of Christian character even further, going on to say that we are to bear with one another, a quality of patience. And then even further to say that we are to forgive one another. And that brings us to our main idea of this text this morning. There's only one verse, so the main idea should be quite clear, but this is the main takeaway that you should leave with from this text this morning. And that is this. 
since Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. See? Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, therefore we should be the most forgiving people in the world. So let's take a few moments to look at this text together and, and consider several lessons that the Lord would have for us for how he wants us to live with each other. So lesson number one, we are to bear with one another. Bear with one another. I recently read a strange interview with a woman who suffered from, an extreme, from this extremely rare disorder known as trimethylaminuria. I practiced. I did better in the first service. It goes by TMAU for short, and it is more commonly known as the fish odor syndrome. Fish odor syndrome. And this is a real thing. It's on the internet, right? And though it's rare, some individuals have this condition where their bodies are unable to break down this naturally occurring compound called trimethylamine. And the problem is, is if your body doesn't break this down correctly, the result is extreme body odor. And some of the symptoms are so severe that they would make me blush if I shared them with you from the pulpit. And so you will have to use your imagination. But we can say this, those who suffer from this have their breath and their sweat and their skin laced with this thick scent that most would compare to rotting eggs, garbage, or stale fish. Worst of all, I'm told, it is completely untreatable by cosmetics and deodorant and soap and Febreze and, and whatever it is, right? The 38-year-old woman from Savannah, Georgia, who anonymously gave this interview, she described her odor like this. I'm on a streak of really gruesome, like, nasty sermon illustrations, aren't I? Like snakes and body odor, but you're listening, I think. She described her odor like this. She said, <laughs> my breath varies between eggs and garbage, and when I get really upset, I get a skunky smell. Now, some of you moms are wondering if your teenage son needs to be evaluated. But what's most interesting is that for those who suffer with the, this TMAU, they are not able to smell themselves, right? It's, it's their body and it's their smell, and, and, and they're not able to smell themselves. However, the people around them can, right? Which sadly means that for many of these folks, they suffer very lonely lives and very embarrassing lives. But this one woman in the interview, she had a husband. And when she was asked if her husband could smell her, she said, well, yes. I mean, at first, but he loved her. And she said, now he doesn't smell it anymore. This is a wonderful, though smelly, picture of what it is like to bear with others. It's the decision to have an attitude that says, you know what? You smell, but I love you, and I'm going to marry you anyways. The marrying aside, that's what Paul calls us to do here in verse 13. We are to bear with one another. That is, we are to have a willingness to even if it's a bit reluctant, to put up with, to stay involved, to stay committed, to stay close, even to people that are unpleasant. 
if you think about it, right? You have families. We, we know what this is like in family situations. Communities can only exist if we remain committed to love people that are unpleasant and to put up with one another. I mean, my goodness, if your family broke apart every time there was a bad smell, there would be nothing left, right? Our, our, our communities are built around a willingness to bear with one another. That's the only way community can exist, right? You have to tolerate annoyances and, and inconveniences and disappointments and failures. And this is because relationships and all communities which are made up of relationships, anything that's made up of two or more people, include these things, right? That's what people do. In Ephesians chapter 2, perhaps you will remember that Paul graciously floats out a reminder that we've all got our problems. He says, you are God's workmanship. You are his handiwork. And part of what that means and part of what that includes is, yes, God is doing this wonderful thing in the life of Christians, but it also means you're not done yet, right? What's that cheesy Christian t-shirt? Be patient, God's still working on me or whatever, right? I mean, it's true. None of us is complete. We are his workmanship, yet we are not complete, which means each one of us is a construction site. And each one of us is, is, is under a varying degree of progress. And so those around us must mind the mess. You must not mind the dust. You must mind the smell. There's a little saying that goes like this. Oh, to live above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. Isn't that true? But Paul does more than just call us to bear with one another. That could be a little detached and distant. The call of the Christian relationship is far more radical. He calls us to go much, much further to forgiveness. He calls us to forgive one another. Look back down at the text, please. In verse 13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Which brings us to a second lesson. That you are to forgive, Christian, as you have been forgiven. Now, Forgiveness can be a very complicated subject. There are many caveats and nuances I'd like to make, but it can be very complicated. And that's because sin makes things really complicated. Sin wreaks havoc. It is a wrecking ball in our lives and produces all sorts of damage. And what we find here in verse 13 is not the only thing the Bible has to say about forgiveness. But it is, without a doubt, the most important teaching in the Bible on forgiveness. You could say that it's not the whole story, but it is the key principle. It is the foundational principle. It is where you must begin, and it is where you must return again and again. That Christians are to forgive in the same way they have been forgiven. There's an occasion here for forgiveness in this text. It always begins with a complaint which we can understand as a sin. As I often say, we sinners are surrounded by other sinners, and sinners sin. So there's all sorts of sin that is in our lives, and the effect of sin, which means that we have a lot of opportunities 
for forgiveness. This complaint could be an unkind word, or it could be adultery. It could be a repeat offense, or it could be a one-time mistake. Do you not notice how there are people in your life who may be a believer who is having to confess the same thing again and again? I'm sorry that I was angry. Please forgive me. Five minutes later, I'm sorry that I was angry. Please forgive me. Right? It could be repeated, or it could be a one-off. It could be devastating in its consequences, lasting for decades. Or it could be a minor annoyance. It, it, it doesn't matter because Christians are called to forgive. Where there is sin, we are to forgive. And what is our standard of forgiveness? Well, we're given a standard. So often we round these edges off the Christian faith to make it more palatable. But notice how we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Can't help, I read one commentator. He said, that is a big ass, as the Lord has forgiven us. Remember our main idea here that Christians are, since we are the most forgiven people in the world, we are to be the most forgiving people in the world. As forgiven people, we are called to imitate God by forgiving others. So here's the thing. Here's what we must remember. God is a radical forgiver of sins. I mean, he is really, really committed to forgiveness, and we should be too. No one could ever conceive a higher, more extravagant standard of forgiveness. And there are many ways that we could go about exploring and studying the forgiveness of God, but I appreciate the way Ken Sandy does in his book on peacemaking where he talks about, he reminds us, right, as many things, we can often understand a subject better by understanding what it is not, right? So we can think about what forgiveness is not in order to clarify what forgiveness really is. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. It is not a feeling. If you wait until you feel like it to forgive, you will never get there. Forgiveness is not a feeling or an emotion. You will never feel like forgiving. That has been my experience. It is never natural. It doesn't feel good immediately. It must be an act of our wills. It's an act of hard decisions. We we decide to make some specific decisions. First of all, we have to ask for God's help. We have to ask him to change our hearts because the forgiveness and the healing that follows, they're impossible without God's help. Let me remind you that this radical standard of of God-like forgiveness was not Paul's idea only, but it was taught by Christ. The very same thing, he said the very same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember? He said, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us, as we forgive our debtors. Did you hear that? Jesus not only not only did Jesus encourage the, the very same quality of radical forgiveness, right, where we recognize that we need to be forgiven, therefore we forgive others, but he also made it clear that this is something you've got to pray about. I mean, it's in the Lord's prayer, right? The fact that he included it here makes me think that this would be a common occurrence, a normal sort of thing for the Christian. 
there are a lot of smelly people out there. People can hurt us in so many ways, and Christians will be given thousands and thousands of opportunities to forgive. You will have plenty of opportunities for this. I would imagine there's not a person in this room that, if you gave it three seconds, couldn't think of a way that someone has hurt you or sinned against you, perhaps even this weekend. But you cannot do this alone. You cannot do this alone. You, 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 don't, you don't wait for some sort of feeling. That feeling will not come. You have to instead call out, cry out to the God of grace, and he will give you help. He's really good at forgiving, and he's really good at giving grace to help us forgive. And then you must exercise your will. It is not enough to cry out to God. You must then exercise your will. That is to make a conscious decision that you're not going to think about, that you're not going to talk about, and you are not going to hold out in front of others what someone has done to hurt you. In counseling, we often call these the four promises of forgiveness. Four promises of forgiveness. It didn't originate with me. I think these are Ken Sandys as well. But promise number one, when you say, I forgive you, what you're saying is, I promise not to dwell on this incident. I'm not going to think about it repeatedly. Now, sin can produce some major hurt. And we may, be, we may think about that hurt a lot. We may have dozens of reminders. But when you say, I forgive you, you're saying, I'm not going to let my thoughts park there. I'm not going to stay there. I'm not going to dwell. I'm not going to run this over in my mind again and again and again. I'm not going to keep thinking about it. I'm not going to keep wondering how such a terrible thing could be done. Instead, I'm not going to dwell on this incident. Which means that you may be taking your thoughts captive again and again and again. A second promise of forgiveness is I'm not going to bring this incident up and use it against you. Not going to bring it up and use it against you. I heard a story once of a woman who said, uh, "Every time my husband and I fight, he gets uh, historical." And the counselor said, "You mean hysterical?" She said, "No, historical. He he brings up the history of all my sins, right? And so often, that's what we do. It's the time when we're going to dump out all the things we we remember. We remember what people have done." But forgiveness says, I'm not going to use this against you again. Can you imagine if God did that to you? 10,000 years into heaven, oh, by the way, time to go to hell? God doesn't do this to us. A third promise is, I will not talk about this incident to others. You can't forgive and then continue to talk about it with other people. I will not talk about this with others. A fourth promise is, I will not, and this is the hardest, I think, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And let me tell you, such a radical commitment to something, to forgiveness like this, that requires an act of your will and it requires grace from God. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You will not feel like doing these things. Instead, you have to call out to the Lord and ask him to change your heart and then make decision after decision after decision to forgive. Secondly, forgiveness is, it's not forgetting. It's not a feeling and it's not forgetting. I don't know where it came from. It's probably an Oprahism, but the Bible does not say forgive and forget. It does not say forgive and forget. And that's because forgiveness 
is not the same thing as forgetting. Those are two different things. Forgetting is passive. It's something that happens to you. It's, it's not something that you can really control. It, it's something that only happens with, with the passing of time. But to forgive is active, where we make a deliberate choice to put away an offense. When the Bible says that God remembers your sin no more, it doesn't mean that God can't remember your sins, right? like he's not able to. It means that he is promising not to remember your sins. When God extends forgiveness to the sinner, it's because he has chosen not to mention, not to recount, and not even to think about those sins ever again. I love how Micah says it, that he hurls them into the depths of the sea. Or it has been so beautifully said, I think in a psalm, that he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Man, that's where I want my sins to be. The Lord moves them as far as the east is from the west. You see, forgiving someone does not simply happen when you say, I forgive you. Right? Those, are, those are not magic words, as if, as, if all, as if all is well. To really forgive someone means that you are making a conscious commitment. And it can often be a daily, sometimes hourly commitment, not to like forget that the sin happened, but to not dwell on that sin. To put it aside. And let me tell you, that takes, you know this, that takes a lot of effort. That can be so incredibly hard. It can be, forgiveness is so costly. But would we not say that Jesus made a great effort to forgive our sins? Would we not say that that was costly? It was. And here's what I found, that that the more you commit to and the more you practice not dwelling on on an offense, do you know what happens? Slowly, those memories often begin to fade away, and the hurt begins to heal by God's grace. Forgiveness is not a feeling, and it is not forgiving. But for, forgiveness is also, it's also not excusing. Right? We need to be clear on this. It's not excusing a sin. How often, we do this in our house all the time, and uh, we, my wife and I, our kids, right? How often do you catch yourself, someone saying, I'm sorry that I was angry with you, and you say, oh, that's okay. Well, I, I think we mean I accept your apology, I, I forgive you, but what we're saying is it's okay that you got angry with me. But, but it's not okay. It's not okay to be angry, and it's not okay to sin. It's not okay at all, major or minor. It's not okay. Sin is never okay. And so often forgiveness, can, it can feel like that what we're saying, what you did is no big deal. And that's not what we're saying at all. I mean, is that what God was doing when he crucified Jesus? Saying, your sin's no big deal? Of course not. When we, when we forget, we recognize that sin is a massive deal. And it has, it often, it always has a massive impact. It can be devastating. It can affect your life for the rest of your life. And when we extend forgiveness, we're not saying, hey, your sin's no big deal. What we're actually saying is something of the opposite. We're saying, 
I forgive you. And what we, means, what we mean is that what you did was wrong. It was wrong to me, and it was wrong to God. It's actually inexcusable. But I've done wrong things too. And since God has forgiven me, I can now forgive you. We're recognizing that something has broken, and it needs to be fixed. So forgiveness is not a feeling, and it's not forgetting, and it's not excusing. But what is it? Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a commitment. It's an act of the will to make a decision to release someone from the liability that they have earned from their sin. They've done something wrong, and to forgive, you are releasing them from any sort of punitive treatment because of what they've done. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no consequences, right? That doesn't mean that at all. But what you're doing is you're considering the debt, the personal debt, to be paid. And that's what this main word for forgiveness means. It means to let go. It means to release. And then the word that's used here in Colossians 3.13, it adds an additional element of grace. The idea is that, is that the act of letting go is an act of grace. It's an act of kindness. I will release you from this. And friends, that reminds us of something that is very important about forgiveness. Forgiveness is never deserved. Never. It's never deserved when it's issued, and it's never deserved when it's received. You never deserve forgiveness, and no one you ever forgive deserves forgiveness. Forgiveness is grace. It's an act of mercy. And so it always requires grace because no one ever deserves it. Which is why we, as Christians, can be really good at this. Because we've received such grace. But this also reminds us that forgiveness is costly. It is costly. It's a transaction. We could say it's a transaction that costs the one who has been sinned against. Every time someone sins, they create something of a debt, like a relational debt, a, a sin debt. And someone has to pay that debt. Now, of course, all sin creates a debt between man and God, always, right? And most of the debt is between man and God. David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. But sin creates a relational debt, the one that has been hurt. That's what, that's what happens, right? Our sin has hurt them. We've taken something from them. And so often what we do when, when people sin against us is we make them pay down their debt. They have to make little deposits, right? Maybe flowers. Maybe they have to say enough kind words. Maybe they have to be self-loathing or they have to cry long enough or feel terrible or what, like whatever it is. There's all sorts of strange dynamics here, right? We, we want people to pay down their debt, to earn it back, to make it up to us, to, to, to promise that they'll never do it again and to somehow guarantee that they'll never do it again. But they can't, you can't do that. Right? And so, and so we, we want them. We want them to feel, we punish people by making them feel guilty or small. And then make them make small incremental payments on the debt until the relationship is restored. We refuse to release them. But in order for forgiveness to take place, in order to truly extend forgiveness, you, the victim, have to make a decision. I can make some of these payments. I can pay down 
some of this debt. I'm not pretending like it's not there. I'm not pretending like I'm not hurt. I'm not pretending like what you did is okay. I'm not pretending like it's no big deal. But what I'm saying is you ran up this debt and I will help you pay. You see what I mean? You're choosing to absorb some of the hurt. And you can do that. Do you know why? Because you have a God who binds up broken hearts. And he heals the hurting. And he is near to the brokenhearted. You can absorb some of that hurt. And you can take it to the Lord. And you can release this person from their debt. You do that by, remember the four promises of forgiveness, by not dwelling on the incident, by not bringing it up again in in retaliation or as a weapon or a tool, by not talking about it with other people, and by not letting it affect your relationship. These things are hard. They are costly. They are so hard. It just feels better to plot some sort of minor revenge or to say unkind words or to to do the cold shoulder thing or to be distant or or whatever, or to bad mouth, whatever it is. It It feels better. Forgiveness is costly. It's expensive. And what I've found at times is that there is what I've, what I've found is that there's sometimes where God helps us do this quickly. He helps us absorb the sin debt and move on quickly. But other times, it's a long, slow process. The debt that sin has created cannot be paid all at once. I've, I, I, at times, I tell victims of adultery that you may have to forgive him or her 5,000 times. Again and again and again. To forgive means you are making a commitment of forgiveness, and that is an open-ended, continual attitude of the heart that you may have to revisit again and again and again. Forgiveness costs. It is expensive. So often I think we, we may be unwilling to forgive because we're, like, we're waiting on it to get easier. Right? We're waiting on a sale, a forgiveness sale, where it doesn't cost so much, where it's not so hard. But that's not how forgiveness works. You see, if you are a Christian, then you must come to recognize that you are the most forgiven person in the world. If you're walking around saying, that person is worse than me, that person needs Jesus more than me, you don't understand the law and you don't understand the gospel. We need to be able to say, like Paul, I sincerely really am the chief of sinners. And since I'm the chief, you can't be the chief. And so I can give you grace. I need more grace than you. It's not necessarily true, but it's the attitude, it's the posture, it's the position of our hearts. You see, when, the fact, when you come to recognize that your sin has been forgiven at great cost, And that it has been forgiven by Christ. And here's the thing. When that becomes incredible to you, when that becomes so amazing, you can't get over it. No matter how hard you try, you can't get over the fact that Christ has forgiven you. When you get there, you'll find an endless supply of grace to give other sinners. We must adopt the attitude of the psalmist who said, Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the story of the gospel. Each one of us has sinned against God, and the wages, the cost, the debt of that sin is death. 
but because of the great mercy with which he has loved us, Jesus paid that debt. Jesus came, he entered into our mess, he bore with us, he bore the smell, and he paid all of the penalty, all the debt that you have created. Do you remember just a few verses earlier in Colossians chapter 2, Paul puts it like this, he says, and you, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. You hear that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what Christ has done, and we are to be like him. Forgiveness is costly. Just ask Jesus. Christ has paid the greatest gift of all and calls us to imitate him. Now, before we close, I want to share with you a few questions that I jotted down this week that I sometimes use to help my heart move towards forgiveness. Just because you understand this pattern of forgiveness, just because you understand how this dynamic is supposed to work in the Christian life, it doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that it's magical, right? I'm often called to forgive when I don't feel like it and I don't want to and I preach about it so these are these are some questions that I use to to help because sometimes I've found even if I want to forgive even if even if I know that I need to and I've been convicted sometimes my heart is just too hurt sometimes I'm just I'm too stunned I just can't get over the consequences and I just don't have enough mercy in my heart one time I said hey Jesus can forgive you because you're he's Jesus I'm not Jesus but we have a spirit dwelling in us, do we not? So I use a few questions to help prime my heart to extend forgiveness. Maybe, maybe one or two of these will resonate with you. Question number one, has God ever forgiven me for a sin like this? Has God ever forgiven me for a sin like this? I've never found a sin that I have not taken part in in some way. Circumstances may be different, but no one has ever sinned against me in a way that I have not sinned against God or someone else. Identify a sinner. Has God ever forgiven me for a sin like this? The second question, if I was the guilty one, would I want God to forgive me for this sin? If I was the guilty one, if I did this, would I want God to forgive me? A third question, would God be willing to forgive this person? What do you think? You think God's willing to forgive the person who sinned against you? Don't be the holdout. A fourth question, which is harder, for God to forgive me of all of my sins or for me to forgive this one sin? Brothers and sisters, we are called to imitate Christ. And even, even if you've given your life to following Christ, you will find that you fall short of that. And God gives you grace even for that. You who should know better. So we run to Jesus saying, you've got to help me. 
I need grace for my struggle to forgive. And God is eager to accept that cry. I'd like to invite you to bow your head and move into a brief time of response to the Lord. As we say each week, God's word always requires a response because God always sends his word out with a purpose. So what has God's purpose been for you today? Perhaps you're here this morning and the whole time you thought of a sin, some bitterness, a grudge that you have held on to, something that someone has done against you and you just have not been able to get past it. Maybe you've said you're sorry, maybe you've, or maybe you've uh, offered forgiveness in word but not in heart, and there's distance in your relationship. The Spirit is working in your heart. Do not quench him and refuse him. Ask the Lord for help on knowing what to do next and for the grace to obey. Perhaps you're here today and you have never experienced this knowledge, this relationship with God that we're talking about. It's a relationship that only comes, it's a knowledge that only comes by knowing Christ through faith. That means that you admit that you're a sinner and that you need help and that you turn from your sin because you don't want to do that anymore and you cry out to Jesus to save you. Maybe today is the day that you need to turn to the Lord. Whatever it is, as we sing, I'm going to invite you. Let's stand together. And as we sing, continue to do business with the Lord. And let's sing together.